Welcome to the second episode of the Farmer to Farmer podcast. This is your host, Chris Blanchard. We've got a great show today with ecopreneur Lisa Kiverest. Lisa shares her experience creating and maintaining a diversified income stream in her rural homestead in southwest Wisconsin. Lisa and her husband, John Ivanko, made a change from their mainstream white bread suburban commute to a job world in Chicago 20 years ago and now make an intentionally modest living from their homestead with income streams from their small market garden, a bed and breakfast, writing, and contract work. Lisa and I talked about combining work with everything else, staying on top of the work, women in agriculture, and a whole lot more. Thank you for joining us. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Second Cup Media, helping tiny businesses build old-fashioned relationships using new fashion technologies. www.secondcupmedia.com The Farmer to Farmer podcast is also brought to you by Purple Pitchfork, providing tools and resources to farmers and food businesses to help them succeed in business, farming, and life. www.purplepitchfork.com Com. Hello, Lisa. Hi, Chris. How are you doing today? Excellent. Good, good. Welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast. I'm really, uh, really thrilled to have you here today. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you. So, um, I've given our listeners just a little bit of an overview, but uh, you know, kind of the 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 big picture about about Lisa Kiverist Incorporated. But I'd really like to hear a little bit in your words as as we start as we start our talk today about. Um, about your, your business, your, your farm, your, um, uh, well, as we talked when we were talking before the interview, you know, you've, you've got in serendipity, um, but then there's all of these other things that are, that are layered onto it. And I, I just like to get a little bit of perspective on how all those pieces fit together before we, before we dive into the rest of this. You bet. And maybe a way to describe that is a, a quick historic context. Um, if you flash back, well, 20 plus years now, but when um, I was out of college and starting my first job, and so was my husband uh, to be down the line, John Ivancoe, we were both doing what our parents still consider the normal phase of our lives, where we graduated with business and marketing degrees from schools and got jobs at corporations. In this case, we both worked and met at uh, ad agency out of Chicago and went to cubicles every day and received paychecks every two weeks and everything was normal and successful by society standards. But both of us, fortunately together in our own ways, realized early on that wasn't the lifestyle for us. It was really draining on so many levels, even financial in the sense of we were making this money, but we were eating out and we weren't home to enjoy cooking and doing some of the things we said we valued. So it was a, it was a very early midlife crisis, but looking back, a, a well-timed one in that we, we got out. And at the time, we were literally escaping on weekends coming up to Wisconsin, just as typical tourists do, camping, hiking sort of things, and fell in love with the rural countryside. And both John and I don't have immediate farm family roots. We, we didn't have grandma's farm we went to. This was very new to us and very new to our, our parents and family in that we had no connection, but we just fell in love. And all of a sudden, this place we were in on weekends felt much more like home than the cubicle, which was where we were supposed to be and what was expected of us at that phase in our life. So we made a change back in 96. We just started thinking, well, hey, could we live and work here in the rural setting, in this case in southwest Wisconsin? And we calculated a little bit too in the sense that we could buy a studio condo in Chicago or five acres and a farmhouse in Wisconsin. Hmm. And at the time, and this is the exciting part is things have changed and improved so much today, but at the time, 18 years ago, the internet was just coming of age. And even then we realized that this is really opening up opportunity for us to work from anywhere and how could we embrace that. So that's the introduction to my intro in that our goal has always been to generate all of our income on farm, but not necessarily all through farming. So we, we didn't want to commute. We didn't want to go to another place to work. We didn't want to work for somebody else. And that was a really big personal realization, especially for me, in that you know, my dad worked for the state of Illinois his whole career. And I came, I did not come from a family of entrepreneurs in that idea that you could work for yourself. And I was grew up in a very risk averse environment, frankly, and very loving, very caring, but, but that was what I, I knew. So this was all very new and it was very, um, 
it was a tough time for me those first couple of years in this corporate job because again that's all I thought I would do and I felt lost but when we ended up here all of a sudden things started clicking in that for the first time I felt like I was in the right environment and when I said we wanted to generate our income on farm but not necessarily all through farming is is we didn't know how to grow anything literally we had never we, we didn't even come from a gardening background so so we knew we uh, needed to to diversify from the start and that decision has really uh, prompted a lot of things for us in a good way in that number one it's always caused us and reinforced for us to keep our expenses lean uh, my mom even asked just the other day, she's like, so how do you make a living in the middle of nowhere? And I'm like, mom, you know, the question isn't that. It's how can we live on what we make? And we found that the less we needed financially, the more freedom we had to do what we wanted to do. So that's been a big part of our story. And secondly, of this diversity of income, it both has uh, created in my opinion, more of a stable financial base than if we had one job and could get fired at any time. But more importantly, it really cultivates creativity in our lives and creativity under the agriculture tent in that there's so many things related to that, both the growing of food, the cooking of food, the teaching about food, et cetera, that I found I really needed and liked. And I need that diversity of projects and people uh, to keep things going. So, so back, back to your question. That's Chris, okay. Know, uh, but that's... that kind of puts it in context. Um, so what we do today is a lot of different things, but I still don't put on pantyhose and go to a job. Uh, so we, um, we run in serendipity farm and bed and breakfast. That's our home base here. So we have a small diversified produce that we grow primarily for our bed and breakfast and we do some local restaurant sales and then um we have the the b&b side going on which we've been that we got going from the start and and continue and really enjoy that interaction with people and then from there we've diversified in that probably my second biggest hat is writing i do a lot of freelance writing on issues under the sustainability tent and i've author, authored a couple of books as well co-writing with john and then and then i do a variety of independent contractor work for particularly like-minded nonprofit groups my my biggest and proudest and funnest head under that is working with Moses on their rural women's project. That's our women farmer outreach and training now going into our, our sixth year of the program. So uh, that arrangement has worked out great in that in many cases, a, well, an organization like Moses doesn't want to, can't fund a full-time position for women farmer training. And that's great for me because I don't want that you, either. You didn't so, want a job anyways. You know? No, yeah. no, no. So doing different projects for, but here's the big key difference of now versus back in my former cubicle life is I'm working with groups that I feel passionate about and shared values with. And I'm not just writing a marketing plan for some new widget. I'm working with other women on helping them realize their agriculture dreams and, and piecing those resource dots together. And that is, needless to say, much, much more rewarding. So I can be more selective in the jobs I take on. And uh, again, this isn't. This goes back to the keeping things lean. The less income I need coming in, the more I can anything from grow my own food to we over the years now fully run the farm on wind and sun energy. So we get a check back from our utility versus another bill to pay to our utility. So it's all of that adding up into having more freedom to do the things I want to do. And I, and I think it's, I think it's interesting, Lisa, because it's not just for you and John, it doesn't seem to be just about doing what you want to do. It seems to be, um, I mean, that's, that's certainly a big piece of it, but it seems like a lot of what you're, what you're wanting to do is to not just, not just manage a lifestyle for John and Lisa, but to, to really have a positive influence on, on your community and on the planet. Yeah, most definitely, Chris. Um, but it all fits together. And I think sometimes, particularly in the farming community, there seems to sometimes have a little bit of a, a negative connotation to the fact that you're doing anything else to 
generate your household income other than farming or that there's almost a stigma that you're not successful enough farming. Therefore, you have to do these other things. And I know particularly where we are here in, in more of a conventional ag area, there's there's a lot of situations where people have off farm jobs and they are driving and commuting places and working a lot of hours and really struggling to make ends meet. That's that I understand is not the, the healthiest route to go, but to have alternate income sources on your farm that still fit under your interests and they may be more diverse than just food. You may have other things going on as well, but, but that strengthens one's livelihood base in ways that we need more of. And, and two, I think at least in my own case, and I know others like yourself who work in this capacity, one side fuels the other. Do you know having some other things going on, particularly in the winter months, reinvigorates and you're ready to go at it again in the growing season. And that is important. Well, and I think it's really interesting. Historically, when you go back and look at at farms and farming in this country, the 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 whole full time farmer idea uh, as the way a traditional farm worked is is a complete myth. Um, that's a, that's a late 20th century invention. And, um, and, and even then I think wasn't, wasn't as much of a, a reality as we, as it's oftentimes portrayed, um, you know, back in the, back in the 1700s and 1800s, everybody was a farmer, but everybody had another job. Everybody had something else that they were doing to make their living. They were, you know, they had a, they, they worked at the sawmill. They had a ba- you know, they had a bakery. They were, um, you know, they were taking in the sewing. They were fixing the tin pots. I mean, there was all kinds of, of crafts that people were doing and, and ways that they were contributing to their community beyond just agriculture. And I think it, it is kind of a weird thing now because there is certainly a stigma in, in farming about, about not being a full-time farmer and not making all of your living from the the activity of actually growing the product and uh and i think i I, and i i do think it can be it can be narrowing and isolating really because you've got uh i mean not not just from an economic and security standpoint but as a farmer you know it's pretty easy to get kind of buried in your own in your own little world and to not have opportunities to to interact with other people except in that that means of I'm out there trying to sell my vegetables or I'm, you know, I'm delivering the grain to the elevator or, you know, or, or the milk trucks coming by. Um, but to, to not really have those, those other opportunities to express yourself fully. Um, yeah, you nailed it, at least from our perspective here, but it, uh, there's, you know, there, there's pros and cons. I, I think anybody who embraces farming as a career inherently needs to also embrace that entrepreneurship mentality. You know, it's not, you need to be, as I've developed, I've realized over these last two decades, you need to develop that uh, entrepreneurial thicker skin and be more um, accepting and embracing of risk. So we're already past that just with the first seed we plant and not knowing what's going to come out of it. So it's almost like taking it up a notch and just embracing that idea that in addition to planting those seeds, literally that to plant some other figurative seeds of income generation will will be more security in the long term. Yeah. And I, I think that I mean, it is where that we have uh, some real opportunities to, to, to kind of build on that that idea that, you know, it's, I mean, it's a little cliche in our world, you know, that, that faith in a seed concept, but it really is, um, as I think as farmers, we, we're already acting in this, it, well, Seth Godin, um, who's a, who's kind of a, he's an internet marketing entrepreneur. He, he talks about it as, as, as your art, you know, that everybody now is an artist and that, that you really, we've already taken ourselves out of being just another cog in the wheel. And that, that we're, we're already practiced at, especially those of us in the alternative agriculture world are already practiced at doing something that's a little bit weird and a little bit different. And I think if we can, if we can kind of take that and build on it, there's some, there's some real power in that because I think we bring uh, an intelligent and a different perspective to what we do that isn't always out there. Um, and if we can, if we can kind of learn to take that same motivation that, that got us to put the seed in the ground in the first place and apply it to, to other, other possible income, uh, generating or, uh, or world changing, uh, activities that, that we as, as farmers, we can have a huge impact 
both on our own lives and and the lives and the world. So, Indeed. Okay. So, um, and you know, this this leads me to this this idea. I mean, I think that that Lisa, one of the as as I've kind of followed you over the years, because you and I. We're both involved with, you're still involved with Moses. I was involved with Moses for, for maybe 13 years in a variety of roles, but we've, you know, we kind of had this opportunity. We didn't work a lot directly together, but we, we worked tangentially together. And I've, as I've watched what you've done and, and things like your work with the women farmers, things like the way that your, your bed and breakfast have developed, I've really, and well, and it really came home to me when I was reading your book, Ecopreneuring, um, that, that really it is about a manifesto for a new economy and a new way of life. You know, it's not just a book about how to make a living in the country. And I think that's a really interesting perspective that you and John bring to this, this business, that it's not, like you said, you know, you, it's not about making more money. It's about, it's about getting by better on what you've got. And it's a whole, it's a whole life approach rather than just a, a, a business and balance sheet approach. That's a big shift. You're right, Chris, in that, especially for beginning farmers, women or men, of as if you're coming from a job situation where you're used to receiving a paycheck and I make X a year, is that you immediately feel you need to make that X in your farm business in order to continue life as you know it. And that's the first and biggest challenge I've found in the the farmers I've worked with of you got to just throw that one out the window, do you know, because the numbers don't add up anymore in various ways. Uh, first of all, there's a lot of, so, so when we approach our own business here as a diversified entity, some pieces generate income, some pieces don't, and they all balance on each other. But everything we do just about is part of our business. And it's no longer this, I'm working nine to five, and then I go home and do what I want to do or do something else. Just about everything we do is related. And it's something that we we enjoy and feel strongly about. So just about everything we do is technically a business expense when there's a monetary purchase involved, for example, or just about anywhere we go is related to our business. And there's a mileage deduction related to that. So everything fits together in different ways. We're growing our own food. We barely have a food bill. And when we do, if I'm buying something like whatever, flour or sugar, for example, that often is part of another business. I'm writing an article or doing a blog post on rum cake I'm making today. It's the holidays. <laughs> so, so everything fits together, but it's a shift of mindset, not that I need to make X so I can go out and buy what I need to do something. It's more identifying that something and then bringing it back. How can this be part of my business and how can what I need to purchase around it be an expense? And and it's an ongoing process. Sometimes I know that can sound very overwhelming when you're starting out and uh, it's a, it's a learned process, but it doesn't need to be that complicated. We're not professional accountants or anything like that. We have a, we do have an accountant in town who looks over our books, but it's more just record keeping of constantly keeping receipts, constantly looking at things from that view of how can I incorporate this into what I'm already doing, et cetera. We still keep our expenses lean, but when we do have them, they're part of the business. So that that's the fundamental shift that people need to embrace. I think sometimes to get into that groove, it helps to have something part-time and, and get in that mode of writing your miles down when you go in the car and putting your receipts in certain places and start that mentality, maybe while you're still at your other job or still in the transition mode. So it's more uh, comfortable once you go in there full-time. It's almost like instead of a business, you've got a liveness. You know, it's, it's, <laughs> I love it. I'm going to use that <laughs> word. Yeah, definitely. So, but it's run like a business. That's the key point in that you need to, at least I feel, embrace the basics of small business 101 to create a viable long-term farm business. And what, I mean, beyond beyond making everything into part of your business or making as many things as possible into part of your business what what else do you feel like is is in that small business 101 it's looking at things pragmatically of 
of, as I mentioned, a lot of the logistics, you know, it's, it, that's where I think, especially I know coming myself from a job situation where the only accounting relationship really I had with the company was the check I received, you know, that was it. And then whatever I did from there, I was on my own. And that will fundamentally change when you're running whatever kind of business, a farm or a cupcake shop, and you need to fully put in the time to understand that and not feel overwhelmed by it, but more so empowered by it. And that definitely didn't happen for me overnight. But in many cases, these are things that are now part of my daily routine that don't, are not big deals anymore. I keep going back to the mileage log because that's a tangible example. We just have a small notebook in our car and every time we sit down and are driving somewhere related to the business, I'm going to town and I'm picking up that sugar or flour or I'm driving to the Moses conference, I write down where I'm going, when I'm going and what the start miles is and the next time I put the end miles. And then at the end of the year, we just add those up. Uh, it, it's those kind of routines that are the foundation of record keeping that is hardly glamorous, sexy, or fun, but it does not have to be overwhelming. It's just routine. I'm curious where, what tools are you using for your record keeping? I mean, where, where do you oh, get that done and what's, what's the workflow and how, how do you keep yeah, track of your expenses? Very, uh, we use QuickBooks as okay. an accounting program and John manages that side a bit more and has learned over the years, in our case at least, and this will be different for everybody, it makes sense to just keep all your records. And then at the end of the year in December is just do all the paperwork, add things up and figure out the the number side of things a bit more uh, versus doing things monthly or even daily or weekly. Uh, we have a business credit card that tracks then all of our expenses on that one card. And we use that for most of our purchases. That helps a lot from a tracking perspective too. So, uh, so those are some of our tools that we use, but um, we, we literally have folders and put receipts in folders. So as long as there's somewhere, okay. Some, <laughs> that somewhere to, to put that, put them where they're not yeah, just sitting in a pile someplace. We keep, we keep receipts by quarter. Um, so we just have four folders and then they all go in the box at the end of the year. So, uh, yeah, that's kind of a system we've worked out, but the, the, the credit card business credit card for us helps a lot because then that's a hundred percent separate. We, uh, knock on wood, have never been audited and I don't have that in my near future. But the point is if ever we were called on anything, we need to have, uh, records. We need to have proof of what we did and that just keeps it simpler and cleaner. Tell me some more about, about some of the other enterprises that you've got, because I mean, you, you talk about using, using your various enterprises to be a way to make, to, to, to turn ordinary expenses into business expenses. And I mean, I, I remember you talked at the, at the Moses new farmer summit last April about, uh, about a trip that you guys took, I think it was to Florida and you were able to write the whole thing off as a business expense because you went and you wrote, I, I think it was a blog post about it or an article about it. Oh, a fair amount about it. Yeah. Yeah. This is a, an interesting example too, of how, uh, the entrepreneurship mentality is different from the job mentality in that when I was at the job days, I had whatever, two weeks of vacation and I saved my money and took a trip. And that was my vacation and sat on the beach. I can't remember the last time I took a vacation per se in that sense, but I haven't for two reasons is number one, I have traveled in different ways, but it's always to your point, part of the business. So I'm still getting out there and in the Florida case, still made it to the beach. But uh, secondly, and importantly, I don't have this need to really escape what I'm doing completely and totally veg out. I, I enjoy what I do and it's not so overwhelming or so intense that Again, I have that need to totally escape and check out. So in the case of, of Florida, conveniently planned during the colder winter months is, yeah, in that case, the, the destination came before the specific work assignments. So we wanted to get somewhere warm and then we work a little backwards of what projects, what work could we generate 
in relation to that trip that it all fits under the legitimate expense guidelines. And in this case, our writing works well in that, in that we needed to generate, uh, and then, you know, there's no cut and dry rule on how much needs to be produced or even the, the quality or quantity. It's, it's, and these, these big questions, I guess, perhaps more for a specific accountant, but in our case, we know we, we, we generate X articles, we generate multiple blog posts, we do some speaking while we're there, or we do different interviews for future articles and keep record of all of that. And that's what justified the trip. Did we have fun? You bet. Did we warm up a little bit? For sure. But again, it's that shift of how can I incorporate ideas that I want to do, places that I want to be under my business versus uh just purification. And the the travel is a really interesting one because I think people still, farmers especially, get caught up or or haven't embraced the idea that travel is a business-related expense. I go through that at the Moses Conference all the time of, you know, 99.9% of the people at the Moses Conference should be deducting all the expenses related to that as a business expense, even if they're in the research phase. And I don't know the statistic, maybe you know, but I mean, I'm sure it's much, much less. And that's unfortunate because that's how you can run a more viable business if you start tracking those things. Did you have fun at the conference? You bet. Did you, you know, see friends? Did Was there a social element? Sure. But that is still social under the business. Well, and I know for, for me, whenever I go on vacation, I just make sure that I'm visiting farms. It's, it's always, yep. I mean, and my, my daughter hates it. Um, she's like, God, do we have to go visit another farm? And I'm like, yeah, absolutely we do because this is a business trip. Um, totally. you just, you just happen to be along and we just happen to be having a good time. Um, <laughs> but, but come with me while we go visit this farm and find out how they're doing things on, on their operation. Yep. That qualifies as research. And again, there's no hard and fast rule on it, but however you document it, be it a log of where you went, be it some photos, if you did a blog post on your farm website, write up so much the better, but something tangible that tracks what you did is what you need from the record keeping side. And, and I think what I find interesting about what you do with, with your business, I mean, you talk about, you know, the, the travel and it, and it turns into a blog post, it turns into a magazine article, it turns into research. Um, I mean, clearly some of the enterprises that you're choosing to engage in as part of your well, as part of your liveness is they, is that you're, you're choosing things that facilitate doing the things that you already want to do. Yes. Okay. Yeah. That, uh, and to the, the research point, that's a interesting one to dwell on a bit because what research really is, is self-education and who doesn't want to do that? Do you know? I mean, that's part of the fun of farming and the whole food umbrella is there's always something new to learn. There's always a new approach. There's always something to read or study or do. And that's what needs to be embraced and celebrated as part of the business. So you're always learning something new, but it always relates to and improves the business. That's how that cycle needs to happen. And not only should it happen, it should be championed. Um, but again, it's a, it's a hard one for people sometimes to fully understand and embrace in one's day-to-day mentality, especially if there's things that you've always done personally that really should be part of your business. You have a CSA newsletter and you're researching recipes to include in your newsletter. That cookbook should be part of your business expense. Uh, or the you know if you needed special ingredients to try the recipes to put in your newsletter, that's part of your business expense. Um, so that uh, is, is new for a lot of people. And I appreciate that because I went through that myself. But it's a, a shift that can fundamentally change things both economically and, and creatively from that diversity standpoint. Well, you know, it's one of the questions I get most often from beginning farmers is, is how do you find balance between your, your farm life and your personal life? And, and it sounds to me like one of the things that you've done in, and, and, and I mean, I think you're a pretty busy person. I mean, you, you always have something going on, Lisa, but, but that it seems like the balance comes out of, of not trying to separate the two so rigorously of saying, you know, everything we do is the business and everything we do is, is also my life. You nailed it, Chris. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know. It might be a personal thing in 
how people best manage themselves. And it's something for people to think about personally. I mean, for example, there are people who thrive in job situations. They like that nine to five or whatever the hours may be, and they check out and they go home to a different life. And I completely respect that. And if that's the way you work best by all means, but I realized early on that it it doesn't work that way. And I'd argue for most people farming, it can't work that way because you live where you work. Do you know what I mean? It's all integrated. And I would argue that most likely you came to this farm in the first place because you wanted that. Do you know, you didn't want, you wanted to live where you work and you wanted to be on the land and all of those wonderful things. So inherently it is integrated. When people ask about those balance questions, I think it warrants a longer discussion. And maybe I'm sure you've, you've had your fair share of those, Chris, of what's your vision, do you know? And in many cases, I found that when things get out of whack, for some people, they need to look at more diversity. They may be too farming intensive or they may be taking on too much of a role in the farming side or, or just bottom line doing too much there that it, it doesn't have anything else going on. So for me, the balance is achieved by having different projects going on. Is it a little chaotic at times? You bet. But, but I like that. I don't need complete off the clock downtime. I enjoy what I do. And if I wasn't testing a recipe for an article, I'd be doing it anyway. So I might as well merge the two. Um, but, but that's something I think people need to really dial into for themselves of how much of one thing they want to do and how much of another. And and we go through that all the time, John and I, and our, I mean, every morning we have what what we call our morning meeting. (laughs) We, We literally just go through the day, go through anything that needs to be talked about. But what it, does on a daily basis is manage that plate, as we call it, of what projects are on our plate. We can't do everything. We don't have any staff. We don't have outsourcing in that sense and don't want to go there. So it's always a question of what can we do within our own family that keeps things moving, but also keeps things enjoyable. So we do say no to a lot of things. We do try to be as efficient as possible in some cases, and that's an ongoing skill that I'm trying to learn, but even I don't know, anything from farming to the writing side to anything in between, the I don't want to say the faster, but the more better use you make of your time in doing certain things, the, the better overall you'll be. So that's a constant uh, learning curve for me. Um, well, and you, you we and I had a have, recent discussion about about uh, David Allen and, and getting things done. His book about about doing time management and and how to really how to really think about managing those flows of information and opportunities that keep coming your way. And I think oh, totally. And I, I I learned a lot from his work because we have the the nice part is of being in a home farm based business as entrepreneurs. You have your whole day. That's a lot of time as a whole, but no matter what, you don't want to be doing one thing all day. I even anything from the physical farming side to more mental projects to anything in between. But as David Allen writes, you can do different things at different times. Well, I I find, for example, that I'm much more of a morning person when it comes to thinking or creating. And a lot of the more physical aspects, I can easily do more into the afternoon or evening. So I try as best I can to structure things that way. And if I have something written due or an idea I need to develop or think through, I'll do that in the morning. And then switch to other things in the afternoon. I'm not a night person and I can't expect myself to do much more into the evening, but we've been doing some more value-added stuff off the farm. I've been making a lot of a lot of sauerkraut specifically this past summer and pickles and those kind of things, but that's an easy activity I can do into the evening. It's not requiring thinking power or anything like that, or I can put on some podcasts, put on your podcast and, <laughs> and work. So, so we have the freedom to do that, but it's always for me, a process of thinking it through and tweaking. And sometimes, you know, I don't have full control over when I need to do something or I have a call or a meeting or something else comes up. Fair enough. But, but 
we inherently do have a lot of control over our schedule and can plot and plan things accordingly. Lisa, we're going to pause for a moment and take a word from our sponsors, and then we'll be right back. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Purple Pitch Fork, where Chris Blanchard, that's me, draws on over 25 years in the organic farming business to provide down-to-earth solutions to the real challenges faced by farmers, food businesses, and nonprofit organizations. I provided help to beginning and experienced farmers around North America with business planning, individual farm assessments, marketing strategies, management training, packing house design, and ongoing individual and team coaching. With experience on farms from one half to 100 acres, I bring the knowledge and approaches that you need to improve your farm, your business, and your life. I don't promise easy, and I don't promise that you'll always like what you hear, but I do have a record of creating real results on real farms. www.purplepitchfork.com. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is also sponsored by Second Cup Media, where Christy and Tom help farmers bridge the gap between technology and relationships. They've worked in the technology field for nearly 20 years, and they know what tools to use, how to use them, and when. But in today's world, that's only part of the equation. The other part, the far more important one, is knowing how to cultivate strong and lasting relationships with your customers. And that's where Second Cup Media comes in. Their goal is to provide farmers and other small businesses with the tools and insights necessary to keep people engaged long enough for that second cup. Whether you need general information or one-on-one intensive, Second Cup Media can help you to better understand the new digital world of customer relationships. www.secondcupmedia.com. How how are you? How do you manage having so many different things going on? I mean, I I think about. I mean, most of the farmers that I know, you know, and I'm in the vegetable world. So uh, and this was certainly true in my operation. You know, we had 40, 50, 60 different kinds of vegetables that we were growing and we're marketing through multiple outlets. And and there's there's newsletters to write. There's there's wholesale availability sheets to be sent out. There's machinery to be maintained. There's crops to be cultivated, you know, on and, you know, along with this whole, you know, weekly um this weekly drumbeat of a schedule of harvesting, washing, and packing. And and while you're not you're not doing a, a CSA, you're not trying to, you know, haul huge amounts of product to farmers market every week. You guys still have a pretty I mean, you've you've got a schedule, you've got these regular things that go on, you've got weekend visitors coming and and staying in, in your bed and breakfast. Um, how are you managing that complexity when you've got both the, you know, you've got these article deadlines, you've got blog posts to be making, you've got, I mean, you, you find time to write these books and you've still got to get out there and and get the cabbage transplanted so that you have something to make sauerkraut out of next August. Right. Well, the seasonal aspect is key and this would go with any farm business related lifestyle that, yeah, the summers are crazy. And that's when we have the bulk of our, well, both growing, but then also the B and B side, the B and B farm stay perspective is an interesting one too, because not only, well, you're hosting people at your home, do you know? So you, you need to keep things tidy and you need to keep things on and you need to yourself be presentable enough that somebody would want to sleep in your house and pay for that, for that experience, you know? So it, it takes additional time to do that. And it gets intense. So during that intense summertime, we have a lot of systems in place of keeping things simple. For example, for the bed and breakfast, uh, I was going to say don't tell anybody, but it really doesn't matter because most of our guests come for one night, maybe two. For most of those guests, probably 80% of the breakfasts I make in the summer are the same. I make zucchini feta pancakes. We've got some good local feta cheese here and some roasted potatoes and a... uh, pumpkin muffin. And it's great. You know, people enjoy it. It's different. It's a unique dish, but I make the same thing. I can do that in my sleep and it uses what we have a lot of abundance of, etc. So that's an example of keeping it simple in ways that work. So we do a lot of that. Um, the other thing that we do with other projects and related in in combination with the farming side is we really work ahead on deadlines and I give credit to my husband, John, he's much better at this than I am, but he keeps me in check. There's nothing we do really is or should be at a last minute deadline in that I'm not writing news articles for the 
whatever, AP wire that need to go out today, that kind of thing. The great majority of what we do, we can control. Even in the fields, you know when things are generally happening. You know when things generally need to be harvested. You have a schedule. You have a system. So, but that said, life happens, right? And things come up and things come up. So the more we can be a, as best we can a couple steps ahead of the game, the better. And frankly, the less stress we have and the more fun it can be because deadlines and that kind of stress are really harmful in that they just, they, they, they don't sit well with anybody. They kind of suck the joy out of life. They do, they do, they do. And exactly. And that, to your point about people asking about balance is a real key factor in that if everything is on deadline last minute, that creates stress. So again, as many systems as we can create in place and as much as we can work ahead for things, the better. Uh, right now we are off the B&B clock. It's the winter months here right now. And we could get some B&B guests and it's not to say we, we wouldn't take them, but Right now, actually, we're not. We made a commitment for the next two months. We're not because we have a lot of other projects going. And this house looks physically different. You know, it's not in its clean, tidy, peak summer season mode. There's various piles of things around. And some of these piles of things around, I already have a, a collection of things I need to bring to the Moses conference, and that's two months away. But it's that constant thinking ahead and, oh yeah, I need this here or I need that there. We did a, um, we do some winter markets with my sauerkraut now. And like anybody who goes to a farmer's market, you've, you've got the more systems you can have in place, the better. You've got your key things in one box that you take with and it's plug and play. Those decrease the stress level there too. So, so that helps a lot. And the, going back to, we started talking about this topic of the seasonality. So we have this intense summer. I, I won't say, you know, our winter is total kickback by any means, but it's different. And that helps a lot on the balance aspect is no, I'm not spending a lot of time cleaning the kitchen and dishes pile up and things like that. But I can channel my time and energy in different ways, primarily on the, the writing side, a lot of that as best I can. I mean, I'm working, for example, on articles now that might be due in June, but I know I'm not going to want to, one of them's on bagel baking. I don't want to bake bagels in June. There's too much else going on. It would be stressful to bake bagels in June, but do you know, in December and January, it's fun to bake bagels. It's fun to bake and eat and test recipes then. So as best I can. And, and believe me, it's a constant dance of trying to push these pieces together. But I, I do know through my own experience for me that the more of that I can get in place, the, the better it is. Lisa, you know, the, uh, this is really interesting because this, this is something that keeps coming up in my conversations with, with farmers of all scales is how important it is that actual ability to execute. You know, I mean, you're talking about you're talking about essentially executing now for things that need to be done six months from now. Um, I think about I think about uh, somebody with a with a machinery heavy farm. And, and you know, one of the differences between farms that are I found that are low stress and very successful versus high stress and always trying to make ends meet is the tractors always start on the low stress farms. The machinery works. And a lot of that's because that maintenance work is getting done in December, January, February. Um, so that stuff's ready to go out to the field. And and that's kind of what you're talking about here is having a system for, for planning ahead and for making the things that you need to have happen six months down the road happen now. Totally, totally. And again, it's by no means an exact science, but it is amazing what you can control. Uh, to your point about maintenance, that's key. That isn't the fun part of the routine, but needs to be there. It has to do with a lot of categories, both our own our, our own personal health, our equipment health, our house health, our family health, all those things. But that makes a big, big difference because then you will still have hiccups. We still have hiccups, particularly during that busy, crazy time of the summer, but we don't have additional ones or at least the ones that we can control, we did as best we can. And that that adds up in the long run. And it saves money too. That's what uh, we realize is, you know, it's always that way where a little bit of investment to keep something up and running helps tremendously when 
you're looking at uh, a large expense down the line. So I'd kind of like to I'd like to pivot now and, and talk, although I think it's I mean, it might not be as much of a pivot as it sounds like it is um, about your about your In Her Boots project that you're doing with Moses. And, and Moses, for those of you who don't know, is the Midwest Organic and Sustainable Education Service based up in Spring Valley, Wisconsin, which is quite a ways from where you are, right, Lisa? Yeah, we're in the far south part of Wisconsin and Moses is about five hours north. So so it really is a lot of remote work that you're doing for them and kind of, again, taking advantage of that internet connection. Uh, the Can you tell me ab- about that project and, and how how all this stuff, all this other stuff that we've been talking about kind of, kind of ties in to the, the challenges and opportunities that are out there for women farmers. Sure. So the Moses Rural Women's Project, uh, we started that now six years ago, and that was prompted by the fact that women are one of the fastest growing segments of new farmers. And we all know all those statistics of the number of farmers going down and farmers, literally passing away via age. It's this new vibrant section and not surprising to us being in the sustainable ag community, but the, the, the segment that's increasing these numbers are women who are starting primarily small scale, diversified, locally focused, sustainable, organic operations. So despite that, there hasn't been a lot of resources targeting women farmers specifically. So that's what we do through the Rural Women's Project. And I'm proud to say Moses is really the only sustainable ag grassroots nonprofit that has a full year-round committed program to women farmers. So we do various workshops throughout the year. The In Her Boots you mentioned, we do during the summer. They are on-farm day-long workshops on women-owned and operated farms. And the program in general bases itself very much on that networking model. There was actually a study out of the University of Wisconsin a couple years ago now that looked at women farmers, both conventional dairy and small-scale sustainable ag vegetables, and asked women where they go to for information related to farming. And hands down, women go to other women, other farmers. And then a second was grassroots nonprofits like Moses, but then down the list were more traditional resources of information like Extension or FSA. And within our Rural Women's Project, we work on both aspects of that scale and that we really celebrate the networking and provide situations where we can have a lot of peer-to-peer exchange and and um, information going back and forth, but then also work with rebuilding connections with agency resources. Because in many cases, women who are new to agriculture just don't know about them. Do you know, don't know about their FSA office or what are some USDA programs, et cetera. So we kind of work on both, both aspects of that, but we primarily attract beginning women farmers to our programs. And uh, it's great in that we can connect sometimes where somebody's attending their first ag event ever, but all these themes we've been talking about, Chris, of diversification and entrepreneurship are very much alive and thriving amongst the women farmer segment. I think women in particular thrive in that diversity element, uh, you know, in many cases too, with family being on a woman's priority agenda, at least as far as a lot of the day-to-day childcare issues, a lot of that integrates too under the diversified umbrella of uh, being able to create a livelihood where you can integrate your kids and integrate your family and be home in different capacities, but still be earning income, still have a, a career in different ways. I think that's a really, a really interesting point. I mean, we, and, and you hear about this, the, this idea that women are better at multitasking, you know, they always, I think the, the analogy is always that, you know, back in the days when we were out on the Savannah, that the, the guy's job was to, to chase down the water Buffalo and you want to be focused when you're chasing down the water Buffalo. And the woman was collecting uh, nuts and fruits and, and herbs and also needed to keep an eye on the baby and, and uh, you know, learned how to, you know, keep the, keep the hyena at bay while she was managing all this other stuff. And, and I think, um, it is interesting to bring in the the family and sort of some of that disparate weight. Um, I mean, do you feel like, I mean, those, those are all challenges. I mean, I think when I, when I talk to people, I mean, beginning farmers, especially, I hear a lot more concern from women about that balance issue than I do from men. 
I, I think in general, women are more comfortable talking about and acknowledging some of the, the challenges that they face in creating a, a balanced life, in, in actually doing that balancing act of, of taking care of the kids, making sure the meal's on the table, and still contributing to the farm in the way that they are expected to and in the way that they want to. Um, does that kind of, does that ring true to you? Oh, no, 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 no. We, <laughs> we, um, we, we talk about, I was just having this conversation with somebody yesterday about just women farmer training programs in general. And I get this partially thrown out as a joke, but it's meant in reality too. Of like, well, we don't have men farming programs. You know, we don't have specific male agriculture programs. Why do we need women? And it's a valid question. Uh, however, two things to that is, is to your point, there are issues under the agriculture tent that are more relevant to women. And when we talk about child rearing and child care, it's by no means is it not that it's not this, you know, partnership between spouses and partners and all of that. No, but when it comes to the day-to-day picture of how are we going to manage our kids, how are we going to integrate them into our lives, how are we going to take care of childcare, all those things, they, they do tend to still fall on a woman's plate of managing and understanding, or at least she will often want to take, um, take that into priority account of figuring those things out. Uh, and I don't know if that's gender influenced or where that's coming from, but that's where we prompt a lot of these discussions within our rural women's project is that need for women to share ideas, to connect with other role models and mentors and how they do that. When we had our last boots workshop this past summer at Stony Acres up outside of Wausau, Wisconsin, Kat Becker was great of telling what she was doing and that she bartered one of her CSA shares for childcare and somebody came to the farm. She has like three younger kids under five to just watch the kids for a couple hours and she can really focus on what she needs to be doing in the field. So there's a lot of creative solutions there, a lot of integration of generations, of grandparents, sometimes moving back to the farm or moving to your family farm so you're close to other relatives to do that. Uh, it takes a village, it takes a tribe mentality. So so that's a, a, a part of that for sure um, that that needs to be celebrated. The, the other part of the 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 question of why we need these women in ag programs is historically women in agriculture have been discriminated against in various ways. Um, if you just look at our United States history, the USDA historically has only tracked male ownership of farms. So if you looked at the ag census, historically there's one place for the owner's name and that was the husband's name just Historically, by default. statistically, right. by right. default. So when when we talk about this increase of women farmers and, and the census, the, the last census, it was even this 30 percent increase is the numbers get a little fuzzy because in many cases it's catch up. The USDA has really embrace this fact that they they need to reflect not just women owners and operators, but just the diversity of farm makeups, that they're not just all male driven and owned. There's partnerships of all sorts and we need to better reflect that. So the next census, I think, has close to six spots for owners and co-owners in different ways to better reflect that diversity. So, so that's great. Uh, but that said, there still is a lot of historic catch up, so much to the point that there's currently a class action settlement process. Similar folks might have heard of like the Pigford settlement on behalf of African Americans and there was one also for Native Americans and now there's one for women farmers and a parallel one for Hispanic farmers for basically discrimination of FSA loans. So there's a specific time frame of some five years during the 80s where if I as a woman farmer went to my FSA and was denied a loan because of gender uh, basically you know told, come back with your brother or come back with your husband, that kind of thing, which is complicated to prove gender discrimination in that was my loan application rejected because I was female or was it rejected because it wasn't a really good application? You know that it gets sticky. But the point is historically women have been underrepresented and what that means today, even though we see this vibrant movement and growth of women farmers is you don't see women as leaders in 
agriculture and at that decision-making table, be it from anything from a federal policy level to a local FSA committee. And that's an overriding goal of our work within the Moses Rural Women's Project is, is how can we better facilitate that. We have a partnership project with the Women, Food, and Agriculture Network called Plate to Politics to both encourage and provide training and support for women to take on more leadership positions because it's been research has proven that when we have a diversity of perspectives at the decision-making table, we get better results and we need more women at the, that table um, as well. So, so it's a, it's a complex of changing gender dynamics, if you will. It, it's, it's hardly that women are new to agriculture. Women have been growing food for forever. And if you look at things globally, we, we grow That's, over 50% of the food. So it's a, it's a situation of both celebrating and championing that better, but also receiving more recognition for it. So those, uh, to, to answer the initial question of why we need these programs, that there's some catch-up that we need to do. And it's interesting because I was just having this conversation the other day with a, a woman in her 20s who was in grad school who, who really couldn't understand the need for some gender-specific programming because she's come of age where, you know, it's not a big deal. What I have the same... Uh, opportunities. I have the same situations as any of my male counterparts. Why do I need this? And and inherently what she's saying is is good and true. And I quickly said, hey, you know, I hope in, I don't, I can't put a number to it, but in, you know, 10, 20 years, I've created a situation or helped create a situation where there is no more rural women's project. We don't need it. You know, we're, we're beyond that. But right now we're not there yet. Well, and I, I just think about I think about the my experience when I was starting my farm here in the middle of what's predominantly corn, soybean, and and dairy country uh, and hogs here in Northeast Iowa, and starting a small vegetable operation, and how much trouble I had getting the uh, the vendors of farm equipment and farm supplies to really take me seriously as a grower. You know, that when I went to somebody and said, I need this piece of equipment fixed because my because I've got farming to do and they knew I that I was a vegetable farmer, they wouldn't take that seriously. They they thought, oh, that's a garden. I need to be helping the guy that's got to get his corn out of the field. That's far more important than the guy who needs to get his rutabagas out of the field. Um, yeah. And it took us years to get over that. And I think about those kinds of biases. Nobody nobody talks about there being a, a bias against, uh, against vegetable growers. And it was something that we wasn't that hard to overcome, but I think I certainly have noticed it with gender issues and it's, it's not just with the FSA or with the USDA. It's, it's with, um, it's with P it's, it's with going into the farm store. It's with going into the tractor dealership and being taken seriously as a farmer, as a grower, as a producer, uh, regardless of, of what your background or your gender, um, or, or any other characteristic is, it really has to do with being, I think, uh, moving people into a position where, where they're common enough out where, where their, where their situation is common enough that they're treated based on their, based on their farm rather than being based on, you know, gender, race, sexual orientation, uh, you know, size of operation, uh, urban background, you know, whatever. And I think, I think that is what makes it important to have, have some programming focused towards people that haven't always been in that situation or that have additional, additional challenges in that regard. You bet. Um, I shouldn't say have additional yeah. challenges, people that face additional challenges. It's not like, it's not like that's something that women did to themselves. So there. Yeah. I'm doing the guy thing and I'm putting my foot in my mouth. So I'm going to extract it now. Um, <laughs> so I, I, I mean, talk about some of the challenges. What, what are some of the, what are some of the unique opportunities that you feel are out there for women? I mean, I, if there are any, I mean, other, I mean, obviously there's the opportunity to be a farmer. I mean, like anybody else um, or, or as part of being part of anybody else, but, but, what what other do you think there's unique opportunities that are available to to women as in agriculture? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I think in in general, 
the opportunities we're talking about are opportunities for beginning farmers, period. Uh, I think with this propensity that I see in our women farmer work of women being not even just open, but seeking diversity really helps a lot from the business perspective. It's not I, it's rare to see a woman farmer coming through our Moses networks who wants to do one thing. Do you know they just want to grow one thing or they just want to be one thing on the farm? So that inherently leads to that diversification. They don't want to just do goats, but I want to do goats, milk, soap, or I want to do cheese or all the other layers to that, which inherently will help their success long term in having that variety of income pools going on. So I think that's that's something that could be celebrated even more. The other thing that women farmers can have as an advantage to help their long-term success is this support of other women farmers. And we see that through our Moses programming, but it's a very collaborative movement. And then not to say that um, it isn't amongst men or other genders, but I think to what we've been talking about that women have historically been so isolated and with starting operations in rural situations, it's the same isolation you're talking about, about being sustainable, organic, anything as a small Island in a sea of conventional ag can be very lonely. <laughs> and it's the same thing. It's, it, well, it's magnified if you add the fact that you're a female organic farmer in the middle of a conventional area. So, seeking out and finding other women as a support network, as a idea network to bounce questions and needs off of is huge. And we've done some of that within our Moses Rural Women's Project of building networks. We have a, a vibrant one here in South Central Wisconsin of probably about 50 women that get together regularly and in different capacities for potlucks on women's farms. And that has tremendously helped support our group locally, both for other businesses to start, you know, a woman who was raising goats and a cheesemaker who needed milk met at a potluck and started a business together. And there's been a couple of different examples like that, that are, are huge. Very cool. Well, Lisa, I, I think this has been a really interesting hour. Thank you very much for making the time to, uh, to talk with us today and share, oh, thank you. share your experiences with, with, with me and with, with my audience. So this has been, this has been fun. Fabulous. All right. So, um, now I do want to, I mean, I do want to give you a chance. I mean, because you make your living through these, all of these diversified activities here, um, you're not like, you know, you're not like somebody who's just, uh, at the Madison farmer's market. You know, you've, you've got the opportunity for people to engage with what you're doing from afar. So can you, I mean, you tell us a little bit about about the books that you've got, and and if people are interested in hearing more about uh, Lisa Kiverest Incorporated, where they would go to to find out more about about what you're doing and how you're doing it and how you're thinking about it. Oh, you bet. Thank you. The so our main website is in serendipity i n n serendipity dot com. You'll find information on the farm and bed and breakfast and our different books. The Books we've written, the first one, Rural Renaissance, was our, about our story that I started with of moving from the Chicago urban scene to our farm in Wisconsin. So it's kind of the book we needed at the time and couldn't find. It's a primer of both our experiences, but resources for getting started in anything from the organic gardening side to renewable energy to starting a bed and breakfast. And then our second book stemmed out from rural renaissance in that uh, we'd have conversations with our B&B guests late night around the campfire and they would ask, well, kind of what we've been talking about today, Chris, of how do you make it all work financially and how can you maintain a successful livelihood off of, off of doing something other than the job and, and importantly, creating a business around what you're passionate about and under that sustainability tent. So that prompted ecopreneuring, which is basically that somebody gave me a nice compliment on it the other day. They goes, you know, it's everything I didn't learn in business school. Uh, <laughs> so it's very transparent. We even have our tax records in there. So folks can get a better sense of the specifics of a lot of what we've been talking about today. And then um, Farmstead Chef is was our third book that uh, is our cookbook. So basically sharing our favorite 
recipes and zucchini feta pancake recipe I mentioned and all that stuff I make for 80% of our B&B <laughs> breakfasts are in there. And uh, we have a new book coming out next year that we can chat about more at a later date, Homemade for Sale, all about starting a food business out of your home kitchen. Thanks to increasing what are called cottage food laws in various states there are now opportunities to start specific kinds of businesses in your home kitchen, which really reduce or eliminate startup costs of investing in a commercial operation. That's great. Lisa, I know it's a huge thing for you to not only to, to have that knowledge, but to be willing to put it out there for other people. I mean, that's, that's, that's great work. I really admire that. Thank you so much uh, again for being so generous with your time, your expertise and your experience today, Lisa. Awesome. Thank you. Right. And listeners, if you don't already know, you can find links to the things that we've mentioned today in today's episode. So, you know, we'll have links to all of the books that, that Lisa talked about. Uh, we'll, we'll have her website, you know, in case you're out there, uh, you know, driving your tractor while you're listening to this show and don't have a pencil and paper to write it down, even though you should have a pencil and paper to write it down, but it's hard to take your hands off the wheels. We'll still have all those links. When you get home, you can look up farmer to farmer podcast.com search for Kiverist. That's K I V I R I S T. And we'll have all of the links to the to the books um, and and then to to Lisa's resources uh, on the in the show notes. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me for the second episode of the Farmer to Farmer podcast. If you like what you hear, you can subscribe to get the podcast every week at farmer to farmer podcast.com slash iTunes. Or if you're on Android, you can go to farmer to farmer podcast.com slash Stitcher. We've got some great episodes coming up with Alan Philo, Richard Wiswall, Patty Wright, and more. You can find show notes and links from this and all of our shows and sign up for my weekly newsletter, The Flying Rutabaga, at farmertofarmerpodcast.com. Thank you again and keep the tractor running.